2: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I was reading this article on Saddam Hussein and all of his body doubles, and supposedly he'd send them out to do TV appearances or speeches, and you know sometimes he'd even send them out to meet ambassadors from other countries. (laughs) So uh, how did people know he was using body doubles? Well, people in Iraq could tell because nobody loved his close-ups more than Saddam Hussein, and he'd (laughs) insist that the press would zoom in on his face so that they could get his full handsomeness in the frame. But when his body doubles were giving televised speeches, it was always this super distant, wide-angle shot, no (laughs) close-up. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious after a while of that, I'm guessing. But then you've also got this first-person account from one of the decoys his sons used. Wait, so his sons were using decoys, too? Yeah, and the job sounded awful. So (laughs) not only did the doubles have to hang out with these idiot psychopaths, but one of them said he was shot not once, but 26 times (laughs) on the job. All during (laughs) these failed assassination attempts. But apparently it was never bad enough that he couldn't be patched up and sent right back out again. That's horrible. I know. I mean, it's got to be the worst job in the world. And (laughs) so he's a human rights lawyer somewhere in Europe and his life has obviously improved since then. But the whole thing made me wonder, what are some of the other candidates for the world's worst job? And what are some other careers your busy town books never told you about as a kid? And, And that's what today's show is all about. on the Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. And the man behind the soundproof glass dressed like a paper boy from the 1920s is our good pal Tristan McNeil. He's always committed. To these... I know. Tristan, we don't need a paper. We've got phones, okay? <laughs> All right. So, so Mango, I know you and I feel lucky to have this weird job that we do where we basically get to read things and then talk to each other about them. I mean, how weird is it that this is our job now? I know. It's the best. And, uh, and that we got to spend this whole week on the job just researching other people's terrible jobs is pretty great. Actually, I forgot to mention this to you. I I Googled worst jobs, and one of the first things that came up was a list of Steve Jobs being terrible to other people. (laughs) It was like like him yelling at a Whole Foods cashier for supposedly overcharging him by a quarter or how he used to recruit talented people by telling them they hadn't achieved anything in their life. So, you know, maybe they should come work for him.
3: Well, maybe we should do a worse Steve Jobs episode down the road. But uh, but let's get back to regular jobs. So I, I was talking to my friend who's this cultural theorist, and he was talking about the way Europeans used to think about work and the way Americans still think about it and how different those two are. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, this is all getting blurred now with technology and whatever. But he was reading this Italian sociologist's book from the 1980s, and the author was making this argument that in America, you're supposed to get enjoyment out of your job. Like, there's this tremendous emphasis placed on doing what you love, right? I mean, that,
2: that's the ideal, I guess.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and his point is, like, your life revolves around your work. Your work friends are some of your closest friends, and you might hang out with them at night. You keep your cell phone by your bed in case there's a work emergency. You plan your life and your vacations around your work. And your work, in many ways, is actually your identity. It's who you are.
2: Yeah. You know, it's the first thing people ask whenever you meet somebody. And as much as I tell myself not to do this, I can't help it. When I meet somebody, the first thing I ask them is like, so what do you do? And I guess in reality, it's, it's often the least interesting thing about a person. Exactly. But his point was that in
3: Germany and Italy and these other places, the culture was very much like. Once you leave work, you leave your work there mm-hmm. and you leave to live your passion. So whether that's going out to shows or spending your time woodworking or dabbling in photography or whatever. And your friends aren't necessarily your work friends, but your friends from that life. It's like the separate hidden life. And the people at work might not even know these more colorful aspects of who you are.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because if your job is something you're just doing to make good money, you know, maybe being, I don't know, say like a whale snot collector isn't such a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's what you do to live comfortably, but it's not the reason you wake up every single morning.
3: Right. So, I mean, I guess you have to like it enough to do it every day, but – uh Whale snot collecting? That sounds like a, a job no guidance counselor has ever tried to sell me on, so I want you
2: to tell me about it. Well, my mom was a guidance counselor, and <laughs> she never mentioned this one to me, so you're right about that. But it, it it's not the sort of thing most kids grow up dreaming they want to be, but it's actually a, a really important job. So I, I'm curious what you actually do, because... I'm
3: guessing it's more intense than just holding up this, like, giant Kleenex in the ocean and tickling a whale under
2: their nose. No, that's pretty much it. So, <laughs> no, it. It is a little more involved in that. And and here's why it's even a job. So it's really hard to collect blood from a whale. Their skin is super thick, and they're, they're not easy to wrangle or keep still. I don't know if you've ever tried to wrangle <laughs> a whale before. It's pretty difficult sometimes scientists have used darts for their biopsies, but they can only get a few samples a day by doing something like that. And that's after a ton of effort.
3: So I, I'm wondering, like, couldn't you just study the blood samples of whales that have washed ashore or like those that are in captivity?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But it's not a great way to understand and monitor the wild population. So Karina uh, Acevedo-Whitehouse, she's the scientist with the Zoological Society of London. She came up with a much more effective way. You know, since she couldn't get a hold of any blood samples, she realized snot was the next best thing. <laughs> I would never actually thought about whale snot before. I don't know if you had. I just kind of, no. <laughs> I didn't even know they made it. But anyway, so, so this is the crazy part. She started tying herself to a boat, leaning over whales' blowholes with a Petri dish, and then trying to collect the gunk whenever they sneezed it out. <laughs> Which sounds disgusting, but, like, did that actually work? Well, I mean, sort of. So so when whales surface, they release this mucus and water and gases about 30 feet into the air from their spout. Huh. And, and you know, but trying to catch the stuff with bare hands and a petri dish while being tied to a ship, it was a little bit dangerous, <laughs> I guess. So she came up with a different idea. And, and so now she flies remote controlled toy helicopters, you know, through these disgusting sneeze clouds and then just takes the whale snot to a lab for bacterial and virus analysis,
3: which actually sounds way cooler once you explain it. I mean, it's still gross, but also kind of awesome. And especially the using toy helicopters for good
2: part. Exactly. It does sound pretty cool when you really start to think about it. And the toy helicopters quickly morphed into using drones. And now there are a lot of whale scientists who have these snot bots to help them collect fluids. And instead of just being able to collect three or four samples, they get close to 50 on a good day. And it's really helped to paint a better understanding of whale health in the wild. Amazing. So I I really like that job, but I I think we should try to make up
3: some ground rules here. I I know we told that Saddam Hussein decoy story at the top, but we've kind of agreed not to cover anything that feels too exploitative or depressing because there are obviously some truly heartbreaking jobs out there. And and this is really more about learning about
2: curious jobs that people actually want to do. Yeah, and – you know, I know the whale snot thing was pretty gross, but I, I think we should probably agree not to cover anything too disgusting.
3: Mm-hmm. Like, snot collecting from giant mammals splits more funny than gross to me. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, I I don't want to do anything on, like, portable toilet cleaners or sewer divers or, or even, you know, about the, the guy who has to empty out the walk-in freezer every week where Boston stashes all of their city's roadkill. Wait, all their roadkill gets stored in a giant freezer yeah it's a walk-in freezer i mean the the most interesting thing about the job is that someone has a business card that reads quote uh final journeys animal aftercare so <laughs> they, they actually have this contract where they escort road on their final final journey but i i think we should focus our efforts on some things that are more surprising and quirkier. so but well, what else do you have for me in
2: this funny gross category I like how we agreed we weren't going to talk about the guy <laughs> that stashes all the city's roadkill and then you totally talked about uh-huh. it. So breaking the rules already here. But, um, let me see. I want to look at my list here. I was reading about, uh, a pet food taster and I, I don't know. I kind of feel like my 12 year old self would be impressed with this job.
3: So, uh, so people actually taste the pet food before it goes out.
2: All right. So there's this great profile from the Daily Mail back in 2008 about this guy named Simon Allison and he's the senior food technologist for Marks and Spencer and this is in England. And, you know, no one has asked him to try the gourmet pet food. He just tries every variety they produce to make sure it's up to snuff. He was quoted as saying, no one asked me to taste it, but it is what I do. It's just <laughs> the same as if I was working in the ready meals department. I love my job and eating the product is a fundamental part. So that's a real commitment. But uh, what kind of thing is he eating? Well, all the cat and dog food that they produce. and So they make things like campfire jerky bars and Thanksgiving cat food with cranberries and turkey. And, <laughs> you know, he claims the cat food has to have more of an odor because cats are more particular. And that a lot of the stuff he does is is mostly for humans. So adding chunky vegetables and making the food look moist and the more humans – think it looks like human food, the more they'll actually pay for it. But, you know, his primary concern is making sure that animals will actually like the stuff.
3: Uh, So I can't imagine eating pet food voluntarily,
2: which just sounds terrible to me. But does he have any tricks to his trade? Well, he says that he looks for texture, like he likes a little bit of grit, but but he always wants something that you can spread on a crusty bread. I don't really understand that part, but that's what he said. The way dogs eat it, right? You know, that, that's what my how my dog eats. So, but but he always keeps a tall glass of water handy. He says he never swallows the food, and it's not that he seems against it. It's more that he doesn't want to put on weight from all this taste testing, what? which would really be a shame if you like put on a ton of weight from eating dog and cat food. But he always keeps gum around because there's nothing worse, in his opinion, than, as he says, dog breath. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got to applaud
3: that sort of dedication. Definitely. I'm I curious whether he holds the same standards for his employees. Like, if they don't want to snack on puppy chow, does he think they're phoning it in? <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's a good amount of gross. Um but how about you hit us up with one more gross one, and then
2: we'll shift gears a little. I like how you knew I was going to come with the gross <laughs> ones, but I, I can do that. All right, let me choose one more here. So, um I mean, this might border on two gross, but there was a pop-size story on this. They did a list of the worst jobs in science, and one of their top choices was flattest judge, or a job where two brave souls, as they put it, were – paid by a gastroenterologist to analyze the odor as people broke wind. (laughs) Which sounds straight out of like a Mel Brooks movie or something. I mean, but the the funny thing is the way the Minneapolis gastroenterologist, his his name is Michael Levitt, so he collected samples, and he did this by getting volunteers to eat copious quantities of pinto beans. (laughs) Again, I know we said we weren't going to talk about gross things, but the 12-year-old me just couldn't (laughs) resist this. But then he used plastic tube contraptions to collect the, quote, episodes of flatulence before analyzing the chemicals and subjecting the people to smells. But, you know, as he defended it, there's a real purpose for this grossness. So so think about mouthwash companies. So unlike those where sensitive sniffers and odor judges are really getting a sense of whether a mouthwash is effectively going to cover up bad breath, here instead the flattest sniffers are analyzing the scent for health reasons. And, And Levitt believes you might actually be able to detect things like ulcerative colitis, you know, all from these aroma notes. And as the article puts it, quote, he's dedicated his career to the study of the myriad fragrances produced by the human gut and imprudently ignored by the medical establishment.
3: I like that phrase, myriad fragrances. But uh, flattest Judge is definitely not a job I want. And I, I do think that's enough grossness. So why don't we break for a little quiz? And then I want to talk about a post that's been called the hardest job in the world, the Somalian Minister of Tourism. So back in a minute.
1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited to availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
4: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
0: Your perfect home, sweet home.
3: So, Mango, who do we have on the line today? So, we've got my pal Lucas Adams. I, I watched Lucas intern all over the place in New York City, and today he has one of the best jobs. He's an amazing cartoonist, and he's also the founding editor of the New York Review of Comics. Which is this super prestigious imprint of the New York Review of Books? It's awesome. But before that, he was juggling tons of terrible jobs in New York City, and that's what I brought him on to talk about. So, uh, Lucas, welcome to the show. Hi there. <laughs> so, one of the funniest things I remember from when you worked on an ice cream truck was how sticky the experience was. And being sticky is the worst. Can Can you talk to me about the different kinds of sticky you'd get on various jobs? <laughs>
5: Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, this is something I still think about. Um, and I would be scooping, my arm hair would get caked in ice cream uh, and like different flavors were worse. Chocolate was the absolute worst. Um, but yeah, you would just sort of have to like hide it from customers like through the day. Uh, so so you would get kind of everything that would get stuck on. It was, it was really ideal. Uh, and then I, a couple other trucks I worked on, I worked on the lobster truck that was run by a, a TV show host's daughter. Uh, and that was always like, you just came out selling like a seafood restaurant, like every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, and my first truck job that was on a dumpling truck and that was like sort of the worst smell. You have this like doughy sort of like dumpling smell. Uh, you burned your hands when you worked the dumpling steamer, you'd kind of lose the feelings in the tips of your fingers. Oh. But, uh, because you're basically getting a steam bath all day. Uh, from the dumpling steamer. It was the clearest skin I've ever had in my life. People <laughs> compliment, like how glowing I looked yeah. <laughs> like through the day. It was really ideal.
2: And yeah. and you'd lost all your arm hair and the ice cream, so you just really shiny arms yeah, exactly. I'm guessing too. That's pretty cool. Exactly. Gross. It was and, a and, real
5: beauty routine buried in there. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And I and I hear sometimes you, you didn't have a work permit to be working these trucks. Is this is this true?
5: Oh yeah. That was that was my first job. Because I moved to New York in twenty ten and you you're supposed to get a permit and With good faith with trucks, you're going to, like, do the steps and go through it, but I put it off for a really long time, and there was always the threat that the health inspector might come and, like, scare you or whatever, and then it actually happened to me where I was like, hi, can I take your order, and a guy just, like, flashes a badge. And I have to go, I got to, like, go immediately to see my mom and just, like, put on my jacket and just run off the truck. And just, like, had to hide out, like, five or six blocks away for uh, the rest of my ship.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds very professional.
3: So I I know I I watched you work your tail off, and I heard these horrible stories of people talking down to you and treating you miserably, but there were some positive experiences you had, right? Can can you talk about some of those?
5: Yeah, definitely. You meet... uh, a lot of good customers to everything, but I met a ton of really great people when, uh, hurricane Sandy hit. And when I was in the ice cream truck, uh, New York city, uh, commissioned a bunch of food trucks, like gave money, uh, to different food trucks. And we were one of them to go out to the rockaways, uh, to breezy point, all these places that had been really hard hit. Cause the city didn't really have any mobile food kitchens. Um, so we would be parked like next to like, uh, neighborhoods that were without power, and we'd be serving coffee and cookies. No ice cream, uh, just coffees and cookies. But it was this really wild environment where everybody was just so excited to be there. Um, I had, like, doctors offering to give us, like, free flu shots. Uh, Our battery died at one point, and this power truck from Wisconsin recharged our battery, and we, like, tried to give them cookies, and they were like, no, save them for everybody who needs them. Oh, wow. Uh, And everybody was just so grateful. And it was, like, it's still probably the best work I've ever done, just because it felt so immediate- and it felt so good to be there to help uh, in this really, like, direct, immediate way. Yeah, that's that's really, really
2: cool. All right, well, we wanted to uh, throw a little quiz at you, Lucas. So, so, Mango, what quiz are we playing today?
3: It's called Odd Jobs, and it's actually a multiple
2: choice. All right, that's right. So we're going to describe an odd job from your and then ask Lucas, what's the job title? So you ready to play, Lucas? Absolutely. All right, question number one. In British towns where there was a mill or a mine, these people were responsible for going house to house to wake workers up in the mornings. What were they called? Were they A, cockadoodlers, or B, knocker ups?
5: <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with B.
3: Yeah, that's right. So the title came from the sound they made on windows. Usually they carried a long pole so that they could tap from the street level.
2: Wow, I kind of wish I had a knocker there once in a while. I guess they're <laughs> called kids. So, All right, question number two. This street profession consisted of shuffling a pea among three thimbles and taking bets on which thimble the pea was under. What were these early hustlers called? A, thimble riggers, or B,
5: pea podsters? I'm going to go with A, but I wish it was B. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You're right. So thimble riggers were <laughs> popular in the late 1700s, and shell games
2: date back to ancient Greece. All right, Lucas is two for two so far. He's halfway there. Number three, this used to be the common name for a wandering egg merchant. Is that an A, Eggler, or B, an Eggmund?
5: Ooh, I'm going to go with B sounds more formal, so let's try
2: that. Oh, we finally stumped him, didn't we, Mango? Yeah, so it's an Eggler. (laughs) And you can guess how these
3: folks got their names. Sometimes an Eggler could also be a Higgler or a door-to-door salesman. Although, to be clear, not all Higglers were Egglers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If there's one thing we want people to take away from this episode, it's that not all Higglers were Egglers, right? (laughs) Okay. Last question. Still a chance for the big prize. Here we go. Question number four. These oddly named textile mill workers had the job of wandering through the mill and changing any bobbins where the yarn or thread was spinning imperfectly. What were they called? Were they A, McFluffins, or B, slubber
5: doffers Oh um let's try B
3: Yeah that's right so any imperfections ah. in the yarn were called slubs so the doffer was responsible for fixing
2: them Gosh we got higglers I and egglers and dufflers, and <laughs> thimble riggers this is this is pretty great All right well I think Lucas did pretty well how do you do mango Yeah Lu- Lucas won an amazing
3: 3 for 4 so we're going to send him a copy of this important book called Poets ranked by beard weight? Uh, congrats, Lucas. And
1: for those of you listening at home. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, StraightForward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guillotine Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
4: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
0: Perfect home sweet home.
3: Be sure to check out the New York
2: Review of Comics. It's truly wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us, Lucas.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: Welcome back to Part Time Genius. Domingo, we're talking about terrible jobs today, but before we dive back into those, how do we cover some of the best job titles we've seen? Now, you, when we were at Mental Floss, I remember your job title was something like, wasn't it like VP of Important Things?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my initial title was actually Product Development, just because that was the job that Tom Hanks had in the movie
2: Big, mm-hmm. but then I changed it to sound even less like a job. All right, well, I've jotted down a list here of some other enviable job titles. Uh, one of my favorites was uh, Bacon Critic, and that's actually a real job at Time Magazine's Extra Crispy site. huh so it's a site dedicated just to breakfast, and apparently they have the critic working pretty hard. I mean, the, the person who filled the job has eaten 31 animals in the span of a month. <laughs> and I'm guessing those aren't full animals, but just the bacon bits. Right.
3: right.
2: <laughs> so what are some of the other great titles? Uh, let's see. Yahoo has a uh, head of cybersecurity that's called the Paranoid in Chief, mm-hmm. and it makes the job sound a little bit more fun. and. Of course, it makes sense because the entire cybersecurity division there, they're called the Paranoids.
3: <laughs> so I actually have a few of these jotted down as well. Um Pizza Hut employs a dean of pizza, <laughs> and I would love to have that title. No kidding. And there's this company called Matrix Group, which is a digital agency, and they've got a chief troublemaker on staff. <laughs> and that's another job title I like. Uh, a little mischief and troublemaking is always something I'm fond of.
2: And a little bit of nonsense in there, too. <laughs> that also makes sense. All right, speaking of which, Microsoft used to have a job for the – Galactic Viceroy of Research Excellence.
3: What's that mean exactly?
2: I mean, I think it's some sort of cloud computing (laughs) gig. I I don't really know. And then I saw another one from uh, Powtoon, which is a software company to help animated explainers and presentations, has a chief executive unicorn.
3: Well, those are definitely very dreamy job titles, but here's one that isn't a dream job. In fact, in 2004, The Economist magazine called it the hardest job in the world. It's the director of tourism in Somalia.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested to hear what you're going to say about the gig. But I do think it gets into tricky territory. You know, obviously, Somalia has been ravaged by civil war for decades now. So, you know, it's not as though we're making light of any situation there. right?
3: Mm -hmm, That's true. And it is sad because the country is truly beautiful. Like Mogadishu was once referred to as the white pearl of the Indian Ocean. The coastline is completely stunning. There's really interesting cuisine from the Italian influence that was there. Like, people eat pastas for lunch with all these various spices. And and from its previous life as a trading port, there are all these other spices that are imported as well. There are these uh, cave paintings, and, and there's this medieval walled city that supposedly contains, like, 90 moss. Oh, wow. Yeah, there, there's a lot of rich history. But I, I think there are two main types of terrible jobs. They're, like, the gross ones, and then they are the ones where you're just bored out of your mind because you can't accomplish anything and you have nothing to show for your work. Mm-hmm. They're kind of this, like, Sisyphus-like
2: job. Yeah, I was telling you about that uh, that piece I read in Esquire a while back, and mm-hmm. and I think these two dudes in Hollywood, you know, from the outside they looked pretty successful. And they had these fancy houses, drove sporty cars, they made a few hundred thousand bucks a year, made definitely enough to eat and vacation well, and and they were really unhappy though because their job was to do rewrites on the fifth and sixth version of terrible scripts. And so they they worked on the Fletch reboot or Angela's Ashes 2 or whatever horrible movie idea studio has. And they get paid good money to try to save these movies. So they would work really hard. But the article said in something like 15 years in Hollywood, neither of them had ever had a real film credit to their names. Exactly. So there's like a
3: futility in those jobs that's remarkable. And it's the same thing with this Somali tourism director. So here, I'm going to read you a little bit from this Economist article, which is actually from 2004. So, Abdi Jamale Osman is Somalia's Minister of Tourism. His inbox is always empty, given that his homeland has not had a single officially acknowledged tourist in 14 years. Somalia is not without its attractions. And so he goes on to say, like, while the lobster and views from hotels are exquisite, one of the hotels, the Sharmo, advises guests to hire at least 10 armed guards to escort them from the airport. Since civil war broke out in 1990, Somalia has been divided into some two dozen warring fiefs, but Mr. Jamale is undaunted. Later in the article, it says, I'm sure tourists would leave Somalia alive, and I'm hopeful they wouldn't be kidnapped, he says. At least we would try to make sure they were not kidnapped. Although it can happen. I mean, I mean, he sounds so sweet and like kind of optimistic that people will actually come.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. It's not very reassuring, though.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but he shows up to work every single day. And just for the record, Somaliland, which is this politically stable and a breakaway territory on the northern coast, that actually does have more to see. You can go snorkeling there and see some of the art we talked about earlier, and it's pretty safe. But Somalia itself is still pretty rough. There's no U.S. embassy. And Osman has said that while you can come for the animals, most of them have been eaten. Mm. But what's interesting is that occasionally people do come. So, in fact, Time had this amazing story from 2010. About this 41-year-old Canadian guy, uh, his, his name was um, Mike Spencer Brown, and he somehow caught a plane to Mogadishu. He's one of these guys who's been to like 150-plus countries and just wanted to put Somalia on his list. But when he showed up, officials were in such disbelief that they tried four different times to put him back on the plane <laughs> and send him home. And Brown admitted he had to shout and play tricks
2: until the plane left without him.
3: But his trip wasn't actually that fun, like, he couldn't actually leave his hotel
2: room. Wow. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess as hard as a job like tourism director there sounds like, I mean, the positive is you can only go up. I mean, this, this, this guy had his job for 14 years, got zero tourists every single one of those years. (laughs) And then he gets one Canadian. So, like, I I would imagine he's got to get a bonus for that, right? Yeah, I guess that's a better way to look at it. But what
3: what I find fascinating about Osman and and some of the other people I researched in these really futile jobs is what pride they take in their work. Like, have you ever heard of uh, Bruce the
2: Mouse Strauss? You're talking about the boxer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have, but you, sh- you should definitely talk a little bit about him.
3: Yeah, so well, one of the things that's crazy to me is that there's this whole world of, like, professional losers out there. And sometimes they're called pelucas or tomato cans, but they're the undercard opponents who keep fighting because they still love the fight. I mean, that does sound pretty terrible to me, though. <laughs> yeah, me too. But Bruce's story is particularly odd because he might be the best loser in history, both as a good sport but also as a talent. So apparently at age 16, he got knocked out by a stray shot putt. And when he woke up, he only had this slight headache. But to him, it was this like total revelation that he could get in a ring and not really be worried about getting knocked out. And according to the Sports Illustrated article on him, his goal has been to become the best opponent of all time. He's lost over 80 times under his own name, 50 or 60 times under aliases. (laughs) He's been knocked out three times in a week, twice in a night. And he even has these, like, special weighted shorts or trick trunks, as he calls them. And they're made so he can box at 180 pounds, even though he's 155 pounds. And the weirdest thing is that he loves what he does.
2: Like, that's the crazy part to me. I don't understand why he wants to box at a higher weight. So, like, he (laughs) likes losing and then really just wants to get hit by an even bigger person. (laughs) Yeah. But if he's known for losing, why do people still put him in fights? Because he doesn't just lose like he goes nine or 10 rounds with people and then actually gives them a really good fight. I mean, as much as I don't understand wanting to put yourself in that situation, you know, losing night after night. I, there is something fascinating about it. And and I guess you kind of have to tip your hat to the person. Yeah, I, I was actually reading this article on Red Klotz, who owned and coached and actually also played for the Washington Generals.
3: So we're talking about that team that lost to the Harlem Globetrotters
2: night after night. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever go see them as a kid? I watched them on TV. Yeah, it was it was always such an entertaining show. But there's this really wonderful profile on him by Joe Poznanski and it, it's fascinating. I mean, just reading the rules that the Generals had for playing the Harlem Globetrotters is pretty crazy. And you think about the makeup of the Generals; they're they're actually really good players. These are guys that all play Division One basketball, hmm. and Klotz himself hates losing. But here's some of the rules. So. The generals are supposed to play hard on offense and actually try to score every time down the court. That was something I didn't know. And when the Globetrotters aren't doing a skit, which is, I don't know, maybe like 40 percent of the time or so, the generals are supposed to play defense and really make them work for every point. But then when it's skit time, they're just supposed to stand there and act embarrassed and – and they have to let the Globetrotters, you know, like pull their pants down, <laughs> stuff a ball in the back of their shirts, all the kind of nonsense that they're up to and just stand there and act humiliated. But, I mean, I, I guess they've signed up for the gig and and it's kind of like performing a play. Yeah. And what's interesting about the piece is that it goes into the one time Klotz and his team beat the Globetrotters. I actually didn't know that they had ever beaten them. And this is like decades ago. But the Globetrotters were playing lazy and they didn't go into skit mode and they kind of weren't paying attention But Klotz and his team just kept hitting these shots, and this is actually the only game the Washington generals have ever won. And when they did, the crowd went totally silent. As he put it, it was like killing Santa Claus. (laughs) And, And the truth is the generals are not actually paid to lose to the Globetrotters. They're paid to be really good opponents. So when this strange victory happened in a completely dry town in the south, the team took Klotz into the shower and sprayed him in orange soda instead of champagne. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure they didn't see it coming. Like, who could have expected that win? Yeah, I don't know. But, but what I love most about the piece is that Klotz really doesn't see himself as a loser. He sees, you know, quote, giving your fight your all as winning. And, and for a good part of his life, he was a winner. So he was just five foot seven. And he led his high school team to the city championships in Philadelphia He then went on to play at Villanova, so obviously a good basketball school. Mm -hmm. And then for the Baltimore Bullets, where he actually won a championship. This was before he started playing for the Generals. So he won an NBA championship? Well, this was proto-NBA, but it was essentially that. I mean, he, he was in the Guinness Book as the shortest player on record to have been on a championship basketball team. But his desk at home was apparently cluttered with notions on reframing the idea of losing. He has himself in a frame with a picture of Al Gore, Charlie Brown and Thomas Dewey. He kept this Confucius quote around him that says uh, our greatest glory isn't falling, but in rising every time we fall. I mean, the man lost over twenty five hundred games in a row, so he had to come <laughs> to terms with it somehow. But the way Poznanski ends the pieces is, is actually kind of beautiful, though. It, it, it's about the game after the epic win. So the Globetrotters were ticked off, they'd been yelled at, and they came out to play. I mean, they just destroyed the generals (laughs) in the next game. But Klotz's memory of the night isn't that they lost or how many times he was pantsed or anything like that, but how they gave it their all, how they made the Globetrotters look really great that night and how at the end of the game, when he looked at the fans smiling and feeling like they had the best night out, his contribution to that made him feel like he'd won. Oh, I love that. So can we
3: talk just for a second about one other aspect that can make a job terrible? Sure. What's that? Uh, your boss. Ah, uh, okay. So it's, it's no surprise that a good boss can make you want to stay in a job for longer, and a terrible boss can give you anxiety and make your life miserable. But there was this interesting study from the Harvard Business Review that found people are happier at work when their boss can do their job. So what does that mean Exactly. So if your boss is trained in your position and has this deep expertise and understanding of what you do, you're more likely to enjoy working with them and and supposedly perform better. It's a departure from this idea that you just need a great manager and delegator in the position, and apparently the results bear out not just in happiness, but in results. Uh, According to the report, Formula One teams do better if led by successful former racing drivers, and universities do better when led by top researchers rather than
2: talented administrators. Which is kind of fascinating. That is interesting. Yeah, I'd not heard that before. All right, but so so let's talk about the actual worst job we each read about. So, what what would you say is yours?
3: Well, th- this is only because I, I now get claustrophobia, which is a fun new skill I've acquired in my thirties. <laughs> but uh, being in a crowded or small space for too long kind of creeps me out. Which is why I've chosen isolation chamber testing at NASA for my nominee for worst job.
2: Oh, that does sound awful.
3: Yeah. So according to PopSci, quote, uh, engineers responsible for life support systems sign up to spend a few months in cramped captivity to test their equipment for no additional pay. In one 91 day test at NASA, the crew recycled their urine into drinking water 13 times. But the true hell is other people. So uh, apparently, like, fistfights and uncomfortable encounters happen all the time. And the worst part is that while people volunteer for this duty to beef up their resumes, according to the article, quote, none of NASA's recent chamber testers has actually made the astronaut corps.
2: That does sound brutal. I I probably would put that in my top two or three worst jobs, too. Mm -hmm. But um, All right. So mine comes after reading a profile on this guy, Bill Hast. He's a 97-year-old guy, and he is a snake milker. (laughs) He's been bitten over 172 times by various venomous snakes, and he used to put on shows at his serpentarium in Miami, and it was one of the most diverse collections of venomous snakes in the world. But the whole reason he'd do this is to save lives. So he was routinely flown around the world to provide anti-venom for various snake bites, and he saved so many different lives. In fact, when his anti-venom bank briefly closed... The number of deaths from exotic snake bites went up, and since it reopened in 1998, it's actually saved over a 1,000 people. You know, and and while that's all very heroic, the idea of actually holding a snake and milking it for venom is something that, I don't know, strangely, I just can't get into for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, me either. But you know what does appeal to me? I do. The PTG (laughs) fact-off. All right, and because of today's theme, we both agreed going into this one that we're going to concentrate on some terrible jobs that no longer exist. Let's do it.
3: So here's a job I definitely don't want: leech collector. Obviously, leeches were commonly used in medicine at one point, but the way leeches were collected was horrible. Basically, you just waded through water and let as many leeches latch onto your legs as you could, and also the job wasn't paid well, which makes the job even
2: worse. Oh, man. All right. Well, here's a dumb one. Whipping boy. So as a (laughs) companion to a Renaissance prince, you got to play with the young royal and perhaps taste some of his food. But the real job was whenever the prince got in trouble, you'd have to supply your backside for whatever (laughs) spankings or physical punishment the prince was supposed to get for all of his naughtiness. (laughs) That sounds terrible. So have you heard of uh, Resurrectionists?
3: No.
0: Uh,
2: apparently in the early
3: 19th century, med schools had a hard time getting a hold of cadavers. So they used to pay these grave robbers to find them fresh bodies. And according to Mental Floss, the, quote, problem became so severe that family members took to guarding the graves of the recently deceased
2: to prevent Resurrectionists from sneaking in and unearthing their dearly departed. Oh, wow. I mean, grave robbing does seem horrible, but, you know, just stealing the jewelry seems a little more innocent, right? They're at least Mm -hmm. not taking the bodies. That does sound like a terrible job, don't get (laughs) me wrong. All right, so here's another gross one. The groom of the stool. You know, so while the name sounds repulsive, the position didn't actually involve any wiping. According to Historic UK, the groom of the stool watched the king's diet and organized the king's day around his predicted movements. (laughs) But because the position was somewhat intimate and needed to be someone the king trusted... It was actually a path to power. In fact, it was a position held exclusively by noblemen. And John Stewart, who was one of King George III's grooms, went on to be prime minister of England. That's so crazy. So I I, I was going to talk about a different job that no longer exists,
3: being a Gallagher copycat act.
2: Gallagher, the comedian. (laughs) I'm sure we really need one more watermelon smashing comedian. Why why would we need two of these?
3: (laughs) So I, I was thinking the same thing. But apparently Gallagher's younger brother, Ron Gallagher, decided to copy his act and appear on the same night in different towns, much to Gallagher's dismay. Oh, Ron. But in 2000, this uh, court stopped him from doing comedy with Fruit and a Sledgehammer, ruling in favor of his older, wiser Gallagher. Gosh. But I, I think I, I like
2: your groom of the stool fact a little better. So why don't we hand you the trophy this week? All right. Well, I'll keep it safe. Thanks so much. And for all of you listeners out there, if there are any weird jobs, terrible jobs, whatever it may be that you feel like we missed today, don't forget you can email us, part-time genius at com. You can also hit us up on Facebook or Twitter, or you can call our 24-7 FACT hotline. Checking the FACT hotline is not a terrible job. It's one of our most fun jobs. <laughs> you can call us there. It's one pt genius We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
2: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec-producer thing.
4: Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
3: There are some things that are too good to keep a
4: secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those
3: hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events.